This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. So the theme tonight is mindfulness of reality. And uh, this is the last in a whole sequence on, um, of, of evenings that we've had looking at mindfulness. So the, the way I've organized material puts together two different teachings around what mindfulness is. And the main frame, the basic framework, is Sangharakshita's teaching that there are different levels of mindfulness. Starting with mindfulness of the self, and then mindfulness of things, physical objects and nature, mindfulness of other people, and mindfulness of then reality, which is where we come to tonight. And mindfulness of self includes uh, what we look at in meditation as the satipatthanas, the foundations of mindfulness. So mindfulness of self really means mindfulness of our bodies, our feelings, our thoughts, and um, the light that the Dharma shines on those, on that inner experience. Then we can look at, at the other dimensions of our experience, through the prism of Sangharashita's teachings, which I think is very helpful. Um, we need both. We need <coughs> a mindfulness practice that's helping us look in depth, in detail, at our experience, or as the world that shows up in our thoughts and feelings and, and our body. Um, but it also helps to, to have other ways to, to notice what's going on around us. You know, to, have, to make it explicit that mindfulness needs to include our physical environment. The people who we share our lives with, who are such an important part of our lives and our experience. And then both the lists really culminate with this idea of mindfulness of reality. So that's just a little road map. You may or may not have been following as we've been uh, pursuing the course. So, um, let's start with a little vignette from my own personal experience. It's been quite, I've been on quite a journey in exploring mindfulness and finding how to make mindfulness a real part of my practice. And, well, maybe I'll start with me as a teenager um, coming along to a Buddhist center quite a long time ago. And, you know, I was quite a heady teenager. I was, you know, I read lots. I read, you know, I was quite sort of precocious. I read lots of philosophy. I was, I was that kind of kid. Um, and I was very excited by... Buddhism and by all these things, but I was not very aware of my body, for example. Now, where I went along 
to, um, to the Buddhist centre I went along to had a restaurant attached to it. And the, uh, all, a lot of the people worked together in a restaurant. So, of course, I helped out and eventually I ended up working in the restaurant. But being quite <laughs> uncoordinated and quite unaware of my body, I broke a lot of plates. <laughs> I, I mean, it really was quite bad, actually. They eventually introduced a breakages policy for you know, their stuff because of me, because I was breaking so many plates. And I just felt so bad about you, you know, my, my uh, lack of physical coordination. Because, you know, this was meant to be a Buddhist restaurant and we were practicing mindfulness and, you know, the mindfulness, mindful people have life eternal, but the unmindful are like the dead. That's what it says in the Dharmapada. So clearly, because I wasn't very, uh, very, you know, I was dropping place and just quite uncoordinated and so on, you know, I, I just felt I couldn't do this. I felt I was really a failure. In, in the realm of mindfulness. And I just put it out of my mind. I, I can't do that. That's for other people. People who are a bit more kind of, you know, the sporty types and the arty types, you know, I don't know, I can't do all that. Practical people. Um, and I really kept that view of myself for quite a long time. And I'm still quite absent-minded, actually, which is a bit of a confession, I suppose, given that I am actually a mindfulness teacher. But I find myself... Uh, you know, looking for my keys and oh, yeah, where I put them. And um, I have got a bit better. And what one incident, I was living in a community called Majumaloka with other Buddhists, and someone who I respect very highly called Sabuti. And I, we were reporting in, and I was talking about this. Ah, oh, you know, I just, yeah, I'm so, I'm, I can't, why, why I'm always looking for my keys, my wallet, I don't know where they are. And Sabuti just said, Look, you are quite mindful, actually. Um, you just need a system. You just always put your watch and your, your keys in the same place and then you'll know where they are. And so there were two things about that. One was that system actually was very helpful and I was no longer faffing around quite so much. And I realised I could sort of bring it into... Because I was organised in other areas of my life. I realised I could just be organised in my practical arrangements. I'm still not that great, but you know, I'm better. And the other thing was, it was just quite encouraging. In fact, it was very encouraging that he said, well, no, you are quite mindful. And what he meant was I was aware, reasonably aware of my thoughts, my feelings, and of other people, you know, and appreciation of the world around me. And so, you know, the fact that I was, you know, never going to be, um, particularly practical in some ways. Um, it's, you know, that's just the kind of person I was. So that was all very interesting and helpful. And in fact, since I've become a householder, despite the fact that Buddha said that householder's life is narrow, dusty and cramped, I've become much more practical. I just built a chicken run, a whole big edifice. So there you go. DIY has come even to me. Um, so, that was all part of a, a process of, of just getting a sense of what mindfulness is, was, and what it isn't. And the, the unhelpful ideas that we can have around <coughs> mindfulness. Um, 
And, you know, for me, it, it meant just really being present in my life as best I could, you know, with the things, some things are more interesting to me, more engaging for me than others. Um, and, you know, that was enough encouragement. And then there was another incident, which I'll also mention. Around the same time, I went on retreat. I, I was traveling in Asia, I, and I decided to retreat in Asia. And I ended up at a, uh, a place in Sri Lanka where you could do a solitary retreat. Um, and, you know, that sounds very exotic and really fantastic. And I thought, great, I go there. So I went there, and it was run by uh, someone called Analia, who's since become very, very well known, but at this point was just a young-ish novice uh, monk. And he, so I had my kuti, um, and it was a little hut, a concrete hut, and that was fine. But the bottom of the hill, despite looking out over a kind of jungle landscape, at the bottom of the hill was a major road. And it wasn't very far away, so it was really noisy. And it was around this place, this kuti, were suburban gardens. And there were people, you know, playing the radio and this and that. And I wasn't very happy about that. I thought, well, you know, surely there's... Go to find somewhere else. Better anyway. I talked to Analia about this, and he said, um, "Well, uh, why don't you try some earphones and earplugs and, and things like that? You know, that will cut down the noise." So I did that. Now it's very hot, and I want. To, I, I hope no one's eaten their dinner recently, but um, I then it was very hot. So I was sitting there in this sort of enclosed concrete kuti, um, which is a little hut, in a lungi and nothing else except for bright green headphones. <laughs> and um, it was still quite noisy, even with, with all that on. So I went to Navio again. I said, oh, you know, it's just so noisy here. And how can how do you manage it, meditate? He said, well, when I'm doing dhyana meditation, earphones, earplugs in. When I do satipatthana meditation, i.e. mindfulness meditation, earplugs out. So I took off my bright green headset, took out the earplugs, and I uh, just shifted my attitude to all this noise. Um, sometimes I put them on again. And actually, it wasn't that noisy. It just wasn't the Asian idyll that I had been wanting. So uh, there was something really important in that about allowing... My allowing things to be as they are, allowing experience to be as it is. You want it to be quiet because doing all, I mean, it's doing a lot of meditation on that retreat, um, but it's not quiet. So, what do you do? Fight to keep it out, 
or in some way accepted. And that's really stayed with me, that instruction is in meditation, but it stands for a lot else. It stands for a whole attitude towards life. Do we try to get the perfect conditions for ourselves? And frankly, we, most of us spend most of our time pursuing those perfect conditions and complaining when we don't get them, either internally or uh, externally, which is called moaning. And we all do a lot of that, don't we? Basically, a lot of our com communication is saying, I want it to be like this, but it's like that. That's not right, because it should be like this. And that, you know, that is, I mean, I don't mean to be too uh, critical of, you know, of that tendency, because it's in me. In fact, it's just human nature. But the, the mindfulness attitude is about allowing our experience to be as it is, becoming interested in it, turning towards it, um, letting it be what it is. I mean, you, may, you don't have to turn towards everything on that retreat. I wasn't particularly interested in listening to the traffic. You know, but once I acknowledged the traffic, then I, it no longer became such a big issue. It became less. So this is mindfulness practice. And taken to its highest level, this is really what we mean by mindfulness of reality or insight into the nature of reality. So the main point I want to make in this talk is that the, um, when we talk about mindfulness of reality and, and gaining insight into reality, this is the key, according to the Buddha, to enlightenment, to some kind of transformative um, insight. When we talk about that, in a sense, we're talking about exactly the same process that we have every moment of the day when we turn towards our experience. When someone at work talks to us in a way that we don't like, we have a choice. We have a choice of reacting and pushing it away or a choice of turning towards it. When in meditation, we, we sit down with the idea that we will be nice and calm and quiet, and we spend the next 20 minutes thinking about, um, I don't know, something that's been on our mind, some kind of worry or some kind of plan or something like that. Um, we have the opportunity in that moment to turn towards the reality of our experience or to in some way get lost in, in, in the complications that our mind throws up. So the Buddha said, in the, the suttas say, a very interesting word, that the Dharma is seamless. Dharma, the Buddha's teaching, is seamless. The same principles apply at every level. So I just want to illustrate this by briefly giving an account 
of the Buddha's career up to his enlightenment. Because I think, I think what we get in the in the in the accounts of the Buddha's uh, process towards enlightenment tells us something about what that enlightenment is. So, um, and I, I've written a book about the Buddha. So, uh, and in that book, I tried my best to separate out what the more reliable early sources say from what the legends uh, that came later say. This isn't an exact science, but I'm going to stick to the things that, you know, through that process, I came to feel were more reliable and more authentic. Um, So, we know that the Buddha grew up in um, a, a tribal kingdom, or, uh, sorry, a tribal uh, confederacy called Shakya. And at some point, through his dissatisfaction with what ordinary life seemed to, to offer, he left home. Particularly, he said, he was profoundly struck by the facts of old age sickness and death, old age, sickness and death, old age, sickness and death. That was the great hidden truth of the world, which everyone else seemed to be ignoring, but he couldn't ignore it. So how can we live a meaningful, happy, authentic life that's true to our experience, which is characterized by old age, sickness, and death, and all of the other myriad um, slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. So the Buddha went on a quest, a search. We hear in a text called the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, or the Noble Quest, that he studied with two teachers. Um, So I'm going to give you my interpretation of that story. I'm not going to sort of try to justify it. But my interpretation is that those teachers were um, teaching meditation that was wrapped up with some kind of set of beliefs, quite probably the kind of beliefs that we encounter in the Upanishads. So they taught him how to achieve these very elevated states of consciousness, um, kind of cosmic consciousness to, at a, at a short, as a shorthand. And um, if we look at the Upanishads, we find very similar descriptions of the state of infinite consciousness, which was, according to the text, taught to him by a teacher called Alara Kalama. And then a state of um, neither perception nor non-perception. So, you know, don't worry about what these mean. They're just sort of cosmic mental states. But in the early Indian sources... These experiences are tied up with very strong metaphysical beliefs, belief in God. And you'll still find this if you talk to people who meditate in a Hindu tradition, that they they will have a, a meditative experience and connect it very strongly with a religious belief. Yes? With a metaphysical belief. So that... Uh, Achieving this state is becoming one with Brahman or one with God or something like that. 
So that's my interpretation of what happened. And um, later on, the Buddha was very clear uh, and says a great deal about the need to distinguish our direct experience from the views, our beliefs that we have around that experience. So in a way, the Buddha is an anti-religious teacher because he says that all of the, the, the metaphysical teachings, metaphysical ideas we have about the nature of reality will subsume ourselves and, we'll, and they, they will filter um, what we, they'll filter our experience. So you can have the most profound meditative experience, but if you believe that it means something, if it operates within a belief system, then you will interpret it in terms of that belief system. Now that applies to Buddhism as well. But then it, so then it's important to have teachings which aren't kind of fixing our experience in a way that actually prevents them from uh, really enabling us to see the truth of existence. So anyway, the Buddha has that experience. Then he has another set of experiences which are about um, punishing the body, mortifying the flesh. And these are, um, there's again, there's a belief there, which is that the body <coughs> is bad and the spirit is good and you need to release the spirit from uh, the body. And we, again, we still find that in some, some of the Indian religions, in Jainism and a tradition called Sankhya. So um, he, again, there's this I, a very strong idea about what spiritual life means, about what, how you get the answer to these existential issues. Then, thirdly, he has a memory of sitting underneath a tree. It's a beautiful, um, blossoming rose apple tree. And when he was a child, and naturally, without any effort, and I would suggest without any overarching belief system around it, he's, his mind does something. What his mind did something. It disclosed a new kind of experience. Now, it's not that that experience, which is what we, um, in later Buddhist uh, language, call the first dhyana. It's not that that experience is the end in itself, but there's something about the capacity of the mind to naturally expand and be aware uh, without any surrounding beliefs that provided him with a clue. And he just thought, what am I doing starving myself to death? Why am I doing this? This is not the path. That experience I had as a child, which must be different from the meditative experiences he'd had with his teachers, that natural uh, knowing and seeing experience, that is the path. So, then the texts tell us that he, um, he just meditated on the basis of that experience. And we don't know exactly what he did. There's one very interesting uh, text that tells us that he, he looked at his experience in terms of 
the character of his mental states. Some were skillful and, and characterized by um, kindness, uh, non-harm, <coughs> um, contentment, and generosity. That sort of thing. Skillful mental states. And some were characterized by ill will, um, craving, and so on. So unskillful mental states. So even the Buddha on the brink of his, we should call him the Bodhisattva, on the brink of his uh, this profound awakening, still subject to all these different states of mind. So in other words, he saw that the mind shapes itself for good and for ill, you know, skillfully and unskillfully. And there's a connection between these skillful mental states and the capacity to be in that mode or that experience that he'd had as a, as a boy uh, under the, under the uh, rose apple tree. Yep. So skillful mental states, that again, they're not an end in themselves. Feeling happy, feeling kind, feeling compassionate to other people, well, that's fine, but it still doesn't mean you've really understood what old age, disease and death are about. But there's an affinity between those two. So the Buddha's teaching really became about cultivating skillful states of mind, um, which he expresses often in terms of karma. Now, the um, and and that as the, the bedrock on which we can make another step, which is insight. So often with with uh, meditation. Oh, sorry, often in Buddhism, we get the impression that insight is some amazing distant goal. And actually, it probably is in one sense. Some of the texts tell us that what you have to do is traverse the entire uh, spectrum of consciousness. You have to be a master of the mind who can go into the most profound states of uh, meditative absorption, which we call the, the dhyanas, and then eventually you get to the fourth dhyana, which opens out into a range of other uh, dhyana experiences, and then until you come to a um, stage of cessation, and one version is, well, that cessation leads to enlightenment. Another version is you have to come back. You've got this whole incredibly powerful consciousness, and you have to come back, boom, 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 down to a state where you can actually think about things. And then you bring in reflections. You reflect on impermanence or um, the unsatisfactoriness of ordinary life, that sort of thing. And then everything comes together, kaboom, and you are enlightened. So those are some of the ways that the Buddhism talks about enlightenment, uh, insight and enlightenment. But actually, um, it, there's another approach, which is to say that the quality of attention that we're paying at every stage of the path is the stuff of insight. So, when we pay attention to the body, we are seeing the body as it is. In the Buddha's methodology, he asks us to see this body not just as something that lives and breathes, but as something that in itself contains certain characteristics which tell us something profoundly important about the whole of life. The body is impermanent. 
we can notice just by watching a single breath that it's impermanent. We notice it arising, we notice it changing in the present moment, we notice it disappearing. Just that gives us a, the whole of existence, the whole of experience. Everything is like that. The, um, the uh, you know, our lives are like that. We're born. That's like we grow. That's like the in-breath. We live our lives and then, then we get old and then we die. And of course it doesn't necessarily happen like that in that neat way. But, but there's that, that kind of cycle is reflected in every, in every life one way or another. So we don't need to look elsewhere for insight. We don't need to look elsewhere for wisdom. Um, in the Zen tradition, they say that teaching the Dharma, teaching Buddhism, is like selling water by the river. So you set yourself up as a Buddhist center or a Dharma teacher, and you say, come and get your water here. And people will come along because you've, you've, you know, it's, you've, you've set up a stall. But you, you also need to point out that there's actually this rather large flow of, of water <coughs> rushing by, behind you, selling water by the river. And that the Dharma is present in every aspect of our life, whether we're a Buddhist or not, not a Buddhist. In a way, the Dharma isn't really um, the thing that Buddhists teach. The Dharma is the nature of reality, and we can see it at every level. Now, um, so this, for me, is what the Buddha did. In some way, under, when he sat under the Bodhi tree, now he didn't have a map. He, no one had told him what to look for in his experience that would point him in this, the direction of insight. But he had the intelligence and the capacity and the, well, according to Buddhism, the, the punya or merit that was accumulated through um, just acting with kindness and compassion for uh, the whole of his life. And in fact, Buddhism would say, the traditional sources would say, for, for many lifetimes before that. So he had all that going for him, but he didn't have a map. No one had said, you need to look at your experience in this way and you will see its salient characteristics. These are the characteristics which will take you down that rabbit hole, will take you into a way of really seeing. And it's not just seeing, it's a seeing that transforms. It's, you, you don't just see the breath changing and you know, impermanence. We don't just think about it. Um, when we're practicing in this way, we feel it, we sense it. And we do that again and again until it becomes part of our instinctive way of knowing the world. So, um, 
this, I think, it must be what the Buddha did, because this is what the texts describe. In some way, he just turned to his experience, and he was able at this point to strip away the beliefs around it, the preconceptions, the assumptions, and most importantly, the emotional pulls that underlie those beliefs. In a text called the Brahmajala Sutta, the Buddha says that he goes through uh, dozens of worldviews and belief systems and, and so on. And he says, yeah, you know what? All of them are really just the expression of agitation of the mind. They're just the result of people pursuing <coughs> pleasant feelings. All these belief systems are things that people believe because they get something from it. They want to believe that. It gives them a sense of reassurance and satisfaction. And however elaborate the, meta the, the, the philosophy goes with it, fundamentally it boils down to this is how I want the world to be. And they're all wrong views, according to the Buddha, all of them. And, you know, once Buddhism gets to a point where it's starting to um, concretize its ideas, you know, again, we're creating wrong views. Well, they might be helpful views to help us gain this direct experience of ourselves, our lives, the world. But the, all of these ideas are means to an end. So the Buddha used the image of the Dharma teachings being a raft. That, you know, if it's built properly, it can help you uh, get across a the river to the farther shore. Um, in Zen tradition, we have the image of the Dharma, the teachings, being a finger pointing at the moon. So don't look at the finger. That is not a moon. That is a finger. So that must be what the Buddha did that he was able to free himself from you know, all of those worldviews, which you know, we can sort of unearth through scholarship around, around the period, and have something else. And for the Buddha, that was, that was enlightenment, um, awakening Bodhi. For us... It's there that, you know, I think we need to keep those that are alive as a possibility and not separated from what we see in our experience all the time. So I'm not going to give an account of the Buddha's map of experience in any detail. I'll just mention the main headings. Um, and if you gain enlightenment as a result, then please let me know after the talk. So the main headings are that everything is um, impermanent, which I've been talking about. Everything is impermanent. Now, if things are impermanent, if they're constantly changing, what's there? What's really there? This body of mine or yours. You know? Cells, molecules, atoms... Quarks? What, what are we talking about now? Um, 
anyway, it's all changing. What's really there? This thing that comes together on the basis of conditions and is always changing. Now, we have all sorts of ideas about our bodies and about our minds and about ourselves. But what's really there? So the second characteristic of existence is what the Buddha called anatta, no fixed self, anatta or anatma. And, and then the third characteristic, they're not always done in this order, but it makes a little bit more sense, is given that our experience is impermanent and insubstantial, um, and yet we are, our experience is, is constructed in such a way that we want security, and we want happiness, and we want pleasure, and we want to avoid pain. Given all of that, there's an obvious mismatch. So existence is unsatisfactory. These are the three marks, unsatisfactoriness, impermanence, and insubstantiality, which are the characteristics of existence, conditioned existence, as the Buddha says. So that's the map that the Buddha didn't have when he sat down to gain enlightenment. And it's the map that he's given us. And it's actually quite a simple map. Buddhist teachings can become quite complex. But the, the essence of the map is, um, is fairly simple. And all insight practices focus around reflections on these things. So we can reflect on them in meditation. We can reflect on them in a cave in the Himalayas. Or we can reflect on them as we go about our lives and things change. And things happen that we don't want to happen. And we overhear ourselves moaning about this to ourselves or to our long-suffering friends. We overhear ourselves. And that process of overhearing is called mindfulness. The process of noticing that our experience isn't the same as our ideas about our experience is also called mindfulness. And when that reflection and that noticing and that mindfulness goes deep enough, it starts to gain a different name. And we can call it insight. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.